two weeks ago, so we're at a little bit of a disadvantage because we took a week off. We started an examination of an interesting Old Testament figure, a man, a judge by the name of Gideon. Like all of the other judges, he seems to be the most unlikely of characters for God to call to deliver his people out of the oppression of the Midianites. The Midianites were a nomadic people group. And the Midianites were oppressing Israel during this particular time period because of their rebellion, because of their wickedness. We won't recap everything, but chapter 6 opens just saying that as a result of their rebellion, as a result of their sin, God used the Midianites to punish the people, to judge the people. The Midianites, again, not having a particular homeland of their own, are described as locusts of the earth. You see, as the children of Israel would work the fields and develop a crop, the time of harvest, like clockwork, for a period of seven or so years, at just the time where the people would experience the true fruit of their labor, God would allow the Midianites to rush into the land and take it all by sword. So they would take all of the food, leaving the children of Israel with nothing, and what they didn't take, they would burn. Starvation settled into the land. Frustration, no doubt. God was judging the people, giving them a taste of the consequences of their behavior. And it's in this particular scene we're given a glimpse into an individual experiencing the same judgment of God, a man by the name of Gideon. Gideon gets introduced to us, threshing wheat in a wine press, which is the wrong place to thresh wheat. But again, he's doing this in secret. He's concealing it because he doesn't want it stolen. So instead of being up on a hilltop, threshing the wheat, throwing it up, letting the wind separate the the, the grain and the chaff, Gideon is down in a hole. He's in a wine press. He's in a cool spot. There is no breeze. There is no air. One commentator describes the scene as Gideon throwing up handfuls and blowing it. Now, while all of this is going on, we're introduced to a character, the angel of the Lord. We know to be a Christophany, that being Jesus, who's observing this, sitting under an oak tree. And he declares out to Gideon in the midst of this particular scene, he says, and you can go back to chapter 6, verse 12. The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Interesting, right from the beginning, Gideon is not a man of valor at all. He's not brave. He's in hiding, concealing his activity. Mighty man of valor. I love Jesus's kind of sarcasm to it. Gideon's like, you talking to me? Are you not seeing what's going on? And yet Jesus describes Gideon as the man he would become even though he wasn't presently that man. Jesus sees us the same way, doesn't he? Jesus sees us as righteous, as pure, as spotless, even though we're not presently, practically, Jesus sees us righteous. He declares as such. He sees Jesus when he sees us. That's why there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Jesus calls out to Gideon, And Gideon immediately begins to complain about the situation. He's like, I don't know if you're aware of this. You know, God did some amazing things in the past. God delivered us out of Egypt. God has raised up uh, deliverers in times past. We've looked at them already. But right now, we're in oppression. We're in bondage. We're in judgment. This is terrible. Where is God? Not realizing God's standing in front of him. 
So Gideon complains, and Jesus' response, it's amazing. He doesn't ridicule him. He doesn't rebuke him. He then calls him. He says, you're a man of valor, and you're complaining about the situation. Guess what, bucko? I'm going to use you. I will be with you, and I will deliver Israel through your hand. Now, I love that. You know, it's so easy to look around the world. Say, God, where are you? God, seems as though you're not working like you have in the past. You know, we are very quick to complain. God, are you not aware of this world? I mean, you need to do something about it. You've worked in times past. You've used other leaders. What about now? You seem to be absent. And you know, it's when we make those observations that the Lord says, well, I'm calling you. Hey, you see the problem. You know, I'm the remedy. Well, guess what? You just volunteered. Understand that's why we're here, to be used by the Lord, to redeem a generation, to be Jesus' hands and feet. Not to deliver this world. This world is headed to destruction, but to deliver those on the path towards destruction with the good news of the gospel of Jesus. So Gideon gets called. And the first order of business is that he's told that he's got a clean house. You see, his father, we're told, is actually the, the gatekeeper, so to speak, of the town temple. You see, his father has an idol of Baal and the Astrid, these pagan gods, and, and he's orchestrating the worship of Jewish people of these gods. And so God's like, Gideon, I'm calling you. I'll be with you. I know you don't feel able, but you will be a man of valor. First stop, you're going to go to your father's house. You're going to tear this stuff down. You're going to make an altar. You're going to offer a sacrifice. And Gideon is obedient, and he's faithful to this. Now, there's some interesting things that happen as a result, but look at verse 33 of chapter 6. It's kind of where we're going to start. We're told, then all the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together. So they're preparing for battle here. They're preparing to come into the land. We're told that they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. So they have entered the land. They've crossed over the Jordan, which is kind of the boundary line. And they're in the land. And we're told, verse 34, but the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, came upon Gideon. Again, this word upon, we, we've talked about it before. It's a, a unique interaction. It's a, an interaction with the Holy Spirit for empowering. The Holy Spirit came upon him, empowered him. We see this happen in select individuals within the Old Testament. An amazing thing, because when you then turn to the New Testament, before Jesus ascends to heaven, Jesus tells his disciples to go to Jerusalem and wait. He's given them a great commission to go into the world with the gospel. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. But he says, go to Jerusalem and wait, because you can't do anything without receiving power from on high. Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Amazing, we see the Holy Spirit coming upon individuals within the Old Testament, accomplishing great feats in the name of God. But it's that same uponing work, empowering, available to every single believer. How amazing. The Holy Spirit comes upon Gideon. Same Spirit can come upon you to empower you, to give you literally dynamite, to make you dynamic. Gideon clothed. I, I love it comes upon. It's literally the Holy Spirit clothed Gideon. It's kind of the imagery of it. 
like a shawl or, or a blanket came upon him. And as a result, he blows the trumpet. Now he blows the shofar. And, and in Israel during this time period, that was a call to, to, to rallying, a call to arms. The enemy has come into the land. Gideon's stepping up in faith. God has said, I will deliver the people by your hand. I will be with you. You won't be alone. Gideon has, has kind of wavered a little here and there. He blows the trumpet. And we're told as a result, the Aborazites gathered behind him, a people group in Israel. He sent messages throughout all Manasseh, another group. They gathered behind him. Also sent messengers to Asher, to Zebulun, to Naphtali, and they came up to meet him. So there's this rallying cry that happens. Hey, we're going to go into battle, baby. God is on our side. Enough is enough. Gideon is the leader. He blows the trumpet and people rally behind him. Word is spread that God is doing something through this, this young man. This man of valor, as we'll see. And then we see, so Gideon said to God, if you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Now, just pause. Chain of events. Interaction with Jesus, calling by Jesus. Stepping out in faith, God preserves him. He blows the trumpet, the Holy Spirit. There's a rallying. There's troops. And in the middle of all of this, Gideon does what? ruh Like, I've now maybe gotten, you know, the horse before the cart. I'm out a little in front of my skis. I know I know. I had this conversation with God, and God promised that he was going to do this thing. But now, like, wow, um, it's real. And so he does this thing. He starts doubting. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Now, this, this is ironic. If God says it, it's true. <laughs> so he's doubting immediately God's word will save Israel by my hand. I know you've already said that, but I'm just kind of doubting. Look, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there's any dew on the fleece only, but it's dry on the ground, then I'll know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And so it was that when he arose the next morning, he squeezed the fleece together. He wrung out of the fleece, the dew, a bowl full of water. So God, hey, we're, you know, if you're really with me, I'm gonna put this fleece out. Let it be soaked with the dew. Let the ground be dry. And then I'll know. So God capitulates, okay? Is that enough for Gideon? <laughs> no. He's like, well, that just seems, it could be a quinkadink. So Gideon said to God, don't be angry. If you have to start with your conversation to God, don't be angry. You should just shut up. Because <laughs> whatever's about to come out of your mouth next well, might make God angry. Don't be angry. Let me just speak once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it be dry on the fleece, but on the ground, let it be dew. So we're going to reverse the process. And God did so that night. It was on, it was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on the ground. Now, this passage gets twisted and warped, and, and it, it's, it ends up being used a lot of times to justify the throwing of what we would call fleeces. It's where we get this idea within Christianity. It's, it's a way in which we can try to decipher God's will. So God speaks to us, whether it's through his word or just a still small voice. God tells us this is what we're going to do or what he wants for us. And we're like, I know you've spoken to me, but I'm really, I need a little bit of additional confirmation. And so we play a game with God where we set up some experiment so that if God comes through with that experiment, it then validates what he's already said, which should be enough. So we play this game. High school students are notorious with this and, and girls. 
Lord, if you really want me to go to prom with this girl, or if you really want me to marry this gal, then this is what I need you to do to confirm. Now, the problem with all of this is just because God is gracious to Gideon doesn't mean that this is the way that God wanted it to be. God has already spoken to Gideon. God has already revealed himself to Gideon. God has already made things clear to Gideon. This is, by the way, though, before we have the totality of scripture. This is before everyone is empowered by the Holy Spirit. We don't see any other example of this type of deciphering of God's will anywhere else in scripture. So it's, it's, it's wrong to take this as a model of deciphering God's will. But I want to speak to the deeper issue of it. Because I've been thinking a lot about this the last two weeks. You know, the essence of throwing fleeces or really sometimes even the essence of our doubt, it's, it's rooted in like what, what I think is actually a false idea. It's that if God um, will just make it really clear what my future is, then I'm really prepared. I, I can prepare now. So if God is, is, is calling you out to take a step of faith and you're like, I just need the surety that this step, like if you can just reveal to me the future, and just tell me what you're going to do. You know, which doesn't fit any precedent because God called Abraham out of Ur to go to a land. He never gets there. He's constantly moving. Why? Because the land was heaven. Faith is about the journey, not the destination. It's about walking with God. And then when we're done, we're called home. But we often want God to give us the future, reveal the future, because we think, wow, if God would just let me know this awesome thing that he's going to do, that I can prepare myself and it's easier for me to walk in it. (laughs) And God doesn't play that way, does he? But you know, I, I think that he doesn't play that way because the inverse. I'll give you an example. If let's say like November of 2021, God came to me and said, Zach, I'm going to have you take a step of faith. I'm going to use you in a powerful way. In fact, you'll get invited to speak at the National Calvary Chapel Pastors Conference to testify of this work that I've done in you. I'm like, sign me up. That sounds awesome. Let's do this. Okay, this is what we're going to do. You're going to get really sick. And I'm going to take you like all the way to the point of death And even surviving, you'll have tilapia stuck to your arms for like seven more months. And it's going to be brutal. Your wife's going to have to take care of your bathroom breaks. She's going to have to feed you. Yes, you'll survive. Yes, you'll breathe. But man, the story, if God had come in in November and and what would I do? That sounds awesome. (laughs) Sign me up, Jesus. No, what would I do? everything humanly possible for that to never happen, right? We think, Lord, show me your will. And God's like, you don't want to know. You don't know what you're asking for because the journey of faith is often hard and it's difficult. (laughs) Jesus hanging out with Lazarus, you know, year one or two, they're BFFs. Yo, bro. I'm going to use you in a major way. Sounds awesome. What's the plan? Yeah, yeah, you're going to you're going to die. And I'm going to do nothing about it for 4 days. I mean, you're going to rot. They're going to bury you. 
don't worry, I have a plan. After I get chewed out by your sisters, I'm going to come to the tomb and call you forth. That's all I'm going to do. Someone else is going to have to unwrap you. That sounds great, Jesus. Hey, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you'll be known for all of eternity. Sweet. What, what's the plan? Fiery furnace. Um, no, <laughs> I'm out. See how that works? Do we really want to know? You know, there are, there are people, I hear people say, and I have a totally different perspective on this now. People will say, man, I just want God to show me a miracle. God can just do a miracle in my life. I'll know. I'll have faith. I'll believe. Not realizing that what necessitates a miracle you being placed into a situation that there is no way out of. A miracle necessitates you being brought to a place where there is no hope at all under any circumstances apart from like this divine, radical intervention of God. You know, I don't really need a miracle to believe. To believe. Be careful. I got to see a miracle. You got to see a miracle. I shouldn't be here apart from a miracle. I'm done with with miracles. So Gideon throws these fleeces, and God is gracious. Verse 1 of chapter 7. Then Jerubbabel, which the the author already is like, "Ah, I'm going to confuse people. Gideon's name was changed by his father in the previous chapter to Jerubbabel. So we're told right there. Then Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, sorry. And all the people who were with him, they rose early. And they encamped beside the well of Harad. So that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreah in the valley. So we have two camps of people. This is the scene. We have the Midianites on one side. We have Gideon and, and this, this group of people that have, have come out of the woodwork and gathered behind Gideon. We'll come to find that it's 32,000 Israelites. Problem is, is that on the other side, the Midianites, we'll come to find out, was about 135,000 of them. And they had camels, which was like the tanks of the day. So you had... Midian with 135,000, and you had Gideon and his crew with 32,000. Not great at math, um, but the odds are stacked against you, right? In fact, the, the, the numbers here, you know, are roughly like, shoot, I'm not even going to do the math. You figure it out. It's not good. Now, there's an idea that we need to unpack before we get to this story, because the story only makes sense if you know a little bit about God. Uh, in fact, you don't have to turn there. I'll, I'll read for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, this is what Paul writes, and this is important for what the story, understanding the story. Paul says, verse 26, he says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Well, thanks, buddy. You know, what's he saying? Hey, the people that God calls uh, are not always wise, uh, they're not mighty, and they're not noble. And we look around the room, it's like, man, Amen. 
But God, this is what Paul says, and this is an insight into God, how God works. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring nothing, the things that are. Why? So that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that as it is written, he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. So there's this idea. In fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul will say of Jesus, Jesus saying, my grace is sufficient for you. Why? For my strength is made perfect. It's perfected in what? Your weakness and me working through it. It's my little paraphrase. So understand something about God. God likes to stack the deck against his people and pick the people that aren't the most equipped so that when he gives the victory and he accomplishes the work, no one on the team or observing the team can say, it was me. Like God stacks it so hard one direction so that when he works, no one can say, I did it. You can only point to Jesus. It was him. You know me? Wasn't me. Couldn't have been me. It was Jesus. So Jesus loves to set a scene where there's insurmountable odds so that when he works, he and he alone gets the glory. So that's the scene. That, that's the So you have 32,000 Israelites. You have 135 Midianites. And what is God's conclusion? It's not bad enough. Verse two, and the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. Now, therefore, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. So God's like, hey, this, the odds here, I know you think it's bad. It's not bad enough. You know, in fact, if I do this work, even though it's 32,000, they're going to still be welled up with pride. We're awesome. And that's not my intent. They need to know I'm delivering them. They're not delivering themselves. So you're going to go to this group of people, the 32,000. You're going to say, yo, guys, if you're afraid, go home. <laughs> and 22,000 of the people are like, sweet. We got permission to leave. And 10,000 remain. So now we're at the odds of roughly 1 to 13 in this battle. So we go from 32,000 to 10,000. Now, if you're Gideon, you're like, <laughs> hope that was good enough. Hope we're on board. Verse 4. But the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. So bring them down to water. And I will test them for you there. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And of whomever I say, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. 
have the people go, have them drink, observe how they do this, separate them into camps. Verse six, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth was 300 men. But the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink water. Now, a little bit of the language in the, in the New King James kind of makes this a little confusing. So I'll just simplify it. Hey, have people go drink water. Two different camps. You're going to have a group of people that are going to rush up to the water. They're going to jump down. They're going to get on their belly. And they're going to begin drinking the water out of, out of like directly into their mouth. They're going to get down. They're going to slurp it up. Put them in a group. There's another group that's going to come down. And they're going to get on a knee. They're going to cup the water, bring it to their mouth. You put them in a group. Now, there's only 300 of those guys. The overwhelming majority gets down on their belly and drinks it right out of the river. Now, if you're Gideon, God has just told you to to have this experiment, separate them into groups. And what do you think Gideon is thinking? Oh, no. I know which group he's going to go with. Right? Right? I know which group you're going to pick. Then the Lord said to Gideon, by the 300 men who lapped, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. And so now we're down to like 1% of the original group. The odds are one to 400. (laughs) 300 versus 135,000. And that's the scene. Now, this group of 300. You study this story. Um, you get a couple different opinions or theories about this group of people. In fact, one of the most conventional ways of looking at the story is that while God was indeed whittling down the group, this group of 300, they were the commandos. Like God didn't leave Gideon with like, you know, no one. That these guys were seasoned battlemen. That they understood that when you're drinking in the battle, you have one hand on that sword. You need to have your head up. You need to be slurping it so you're attentive. As opposed to the other guys that just, you know, go skinny dipping, you know? Not what you want in the battle. So, so what is this? Now, to me, the biggest problem I have with that interpretation is it doesn't fit the, the narrative. Because what is God clearly doing? Right from the jump. God is setting a scenario where no one can take credit for anything that he's going to do. Here's a different way of looking at it. The young men aren't going to understand this. But you know what's really hard for an older man to do? If I get down on my belly to drink water, you know what I'm not going to be doing? getting up anytime soon. My knees don't work. I'm front loaded a little. I get, I, an older man gets down, falls down. We, we had an experiment when I was really injured. You know, I was, I was worried about like, if I end up on the ground, can I physically get up? I'm gonna be laying there flopping around till Jessica gets home. So the whole family was together and we ran an experiment. Like, can you get up without using your arms? If you're on the ground, my dad was like, easy, that's easy. It took him 30 minutes before he gave up. Like if your arms are totally limp and you're sitting on the floor, getting up is very difficult to do. Very difficult. 
Could it be, and again, I think this fits the narrative, that the 300 guys that go down to drink water and instead get down, <clears throat> here we go. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, guy, get back up now. <laughs> these are not your commandos, but these are your, your, your seasoned citizens who have knee replacements, hip replacements. These are not the best of the best, physically speaking. I think that fits the narrative. Now, if you go back to why did these 300 guys stay when Gideon cries out, hey, if you're afraid, you can go home. Why did they stay? They couldn't hear him. They would have absolutely gone back. But they didn't have hearing aids at the time. So, so get the scene. You've got 300 guys. Can't hear very well. Can't get down to drink water. Very, aren't very, they don't have a lot of dexterity, if you know what I mean. And it happened on the same night that the Lord said to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. Oh, I got to go back to verse eight. So the people took provisions, trumpets in their hand. He sent everyone away, all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent. He retained those 300 men. Camp of Midian was below them. It happened, the Lord said, to Gideon, rise, go to the camp. I will deliver it to your hands, verse 10. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Purah, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward, your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. So the scene here is this whole army of 32,000, which is still overmatched against Midian, gets whittled down to 300. And Gideon's like, thanks God, this is great. And in the moment, God's like, my boy needs a little encouragement. So he's like, hey, if you're afraid, of course he's afraid, take Pura with you, go down to the camp. I wanna reveal something to you. So they went down, Pura, his servant, to the outpost, the armed men who are in the camp. Now the Midianites, the Amalekites, all the people of the east were lying in the valley, as numerous as locusts, their caramels were without number, as the sand of the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man, a man, telling a dream to his companion. And he said, he said, I've had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian. And it came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned and the tent collapsed. So this Midianite is hanging out with his brother, the buddy, they're probably on the watch. Gideon, Pura sneak up. They're, they're eavesdropping on a conversation. One guy says to the other, hey man, I had this weird, weird dream, man. You hear about it? Sure, I'll, I'll hear about it. There was this loaf of barley bread. Now barley... It's the worst of all the kind of grains. Like it was, it was barley was reserved for poverty. So in your mind, I just want you to think of it as a glazed donut. So there was this Dunkin' Donut tumbling down the mountain and it came through the camp and it hit the tent. Now, scholars, if you dig into the original language, the tent, it's not just a tent. It's likely that the, the chief's tent, the king's tent, it's the, the tent of power and it destroys it. He's like, what a weird dream, right? 
So his companion answered and said, I'll interpret. (laughs) This is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Gideon's the donut. And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshiped. I'm sure Purah's like, keep it down. And he returned to the camp of Israel and he says, arise for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Amazing. Gideon needs some encouragement. Again, does God rebuke him? No. You know, we're told in Hebrews 11, Gideon is described as a man of faith, which is so ironic because there's not a lot of faith. And yet God meets him in his weakness and meets him in his need and encourages him. Like, Zach, I don't have a whole lot of faith. That's okay. It's not the amount of faith. It's the object of one's faith that matters. And even in those, you know, I, think of, I think of the guy, Jesus is going to work in his life. And Jesus is like, do you believe? Do you believe I can do this? And you remember what the man said? He said, Lord, I believe. (sighs) Help my unbelief. He jumped out. I believe. And then he's like, not all the way. And what does Jesus say? Well, your kid can die. No. Jesus acts and he works. You know, sometimes, man, we don't have faith, do we? And we struggle. Lord, I don't know about these circumstances. Man, it seems really stacked against me. I know you want the glory, but I don't know how this is going to work. There's just 300 of us. There's 135,000 plus the camels. Can't even count them, so many of them. I'm scared. Just being honest, I'm scared. You know, Gideon doesn't even have to come and acknowledge his fear to the Lord. It's the Lord that comes to him and meets him in his fear. He says, hey, go down. I want you to hear something. And the, the camp, they're freaked out. They've heard of Gideon, the sword of Gideon. Gideon's done nothing, really. Seems that maybe this dream was reoccurring for mo- multiple people. And that there was this environment, and Gideon gets the strength that he needs, and he comes back to the camp. He says, arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hands. Now, I, I just want to look at this from God's perspective for just a moment because, again, it's God's graciousness. God has over and over and over and over again repeated himself to Gideon. I am going to deliver them into your hands. I'm going to free Israel. I'm going to do this through you. And over and over and over again, Gideon's like, mm. Gideon has a hard time believing God. But the moment he hears one of the Midianites be like, Gideon, God's going to deliver Midian into the hand of Gideon. Gideon's like, that's all I needed. God's like, I've been speaking, but it's this Midian, this unnamed Midianite. That puts your mind at ease. So he divided the 300 men into three companies. And he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me, do likewise. Watch. And when I come to the edge of the camp, you do what I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpet on every side of the whole camp. And say, cry out, 
the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. So Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the outposts of the camp at the beginning of the, the, the middle watch, the middle of the night, just that they had posted the watch and they blew the trumpets and they broke the pitchers that were in their hand. Then the three companies, they blew trumpets. They broke the pitchers. They held the torches in the left hand, their trumpets in their right hand for blowing. And they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And every man stood in his place all around the camp and the whole army ran and they cried out and they fled. When the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord said, every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Achaia towards Zerah as far as the border of Abel, Milas, and Tabith. And the men of Israel gathered, <laughs> gathered together, excuse me, <clears throat> from Naphtali, Asher, and all of Manasseh, and per- pursued the Midianites. Now, what a scene. One of the things that I find interesting <clears throat> about the story is, um, and, and I would actually encourage you to maybe do this on your own as we work our way through Judges. But I have a, a pink highlighter, a different colored highlighter. And every time that God speaks, I highlight what God says. And man, in Gideon, there is a whole lot of the Lord speaking, isn't there? Some stories is less than others. But with Gideon, there's a lot of communication going back and forth. Except for the strategy, right? At any point, do you see God telling Gideon what the plan is? No, God has just whittled it down where it's insurmountable odds. God has just done everything he can to stack the deck against Gideon. And then what is God like? You can figure it out now. <laughs> There's no communication, which I think is interesting. Because there is this, this dynamic where God, God accomplishes a work, but he still uses a vessel. He still uses you. And we come to the Lord and we're like, Lord, I want you to use me. I, I want to be your instrument. And the Lord's like, okay, come up with a plan. And then I'll infuse that plan. I'll use that plan. Gideon comes up with a strategy. Well, we're really, the odds are against us. And so there's 300. So everybody get a pitch, get a torch, get a pot, cover the light, and get a trumpet. Now, right off the bat, if you're one of these 300, you're like, where's the sword? One hand, I've got a torch. The other hand, I've got a trumpet. Um, where's the AK, right? And he's like, they're in the valley. We're going to surround the valley, spread out. And when you hear my trumpet, do as I do. So they blow the trumpet. They break the, the pitcher. Fire is illuminated. And chaos ensues. See, in that culture, it was typically like accompaniment or a company of soldiers would be given one trumpet and one torch, one you know, to, to signify for signaling and whatnot. So if you're one of these Midianites there in the valley and you hear these trumpets blast, like in stereo, and then you look up, it's dark, you can't see, but now you got these torches and there's 300 of them. You're thinking they've got 300,000 men up here. Now, there's only 300. And everyone's disoriented and they're discombobulated. And so what happens? They start attacking each other. Like God gives an incredible victory to Israel and not one Israeli swings a sword. 
Can any of them take credit? <laughs> the glory is the Lord. Again, I think that there is a bit of an analogy to this for our own selves. You know, the Bible describes us as clay vessels. And we're only useful when the fire that's within comes shining forth, right? The power of God comes forth. The revelation of God comes forth. The illumination of God comes forth. Your life will make an impact when what's inside of you comes shining forth. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And we possess that light. But how does the light shine forth? This is a tough one. You ready? The vessel has to be broken. And again, if you get into the consistent ideas throughout Scripture, it is through our brokenness. That his power is demonstrated. You know, the world, when your life is going really well and you're praising God, the world doesn't care. The world doesn't care that you're praising God because life is good. What else are you going to do? It's like when Satan goes before the throne of God and God's like, have you seen my boy Job? He's a righteous man, loves me, worships me, follows me. God's like bragging about him. And Satan's like, well, of course. Look at how blessed he is. Look how good his life is. He has no pain. There's no suffering. There's no loss. There's no frustration. You take that stuff away, you remove his comfort, he'll curse you. So what happens? God says, okay. Takes a whole bunch of stuff away. Loses everything. Satan leaves his nagging wife. Kills all of his family, but his nagging wife, he leaves her. And he doesn't curse God. And Satan comes back. Oh, he's only doing this because physically he's fine. You wouldn't let me touch him physically. And God's like, okay. He gets these boils all over his skin. And he's sitting in ash, scraping himself with pottery. People don't really care that you worship God, that you serve God, that you're faithful to God when life is good. Because that's easy. It's easy. But I will tell you this. When your life is broken and you've been crushed and you've been disappointed and you're suffering and you're in pain, when everything is breaking and from the midst of that brokenness comes forth the light of God, when people see it, that ain't normal. People, people observe what you do in the midst of pain and suffering and disappointment more than what you do when times are good. And the reason is because the world provides nothing for that person. Everybody's broken, everybody suffers, everybody hurts. But when we have that light shining forth, people see it and like, I need that. I want that. God gives a victory, how? 
He breaks vessels and the light shines forth. Chaos ensues. It's the same with you. I go back to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Yes, his strength is made perfect in weakness. And you're like, oh man, that's rough. But that's why Paul begins it with my grace is sufficient. If it was just, hey, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. If that was just the verse, that's a bummer. But it's not the whole verse. Because before we even get to the weakness part, God comes in with this promise, this assurance. Hey, you're weak. But please know my grace is sufficient in your weakness. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for this story.